0: It's hard to believe it's 55 years ago that David Steele's abortion bill came into law on the 27th of April 1968. It had gone through Parliament and received royal assent six months earlier than that, and there was that 6 months period before it would come into law. The upper limit of abortion has since been reduced back in 1999 from 28 weeks to 24 weeks for... Fetal abnormality or significant risk, risk to a mother's health, there is no limit at all on this issue of abortion in our land. It is reckoned that since the Abortion Act came into existence back 55 years ago, we are on the cusp in the United Kingdom alone of having aborted almost one million children. The most, one of the most dangerous places for a child today is in its mother's womb. Abortions carried out for a number of reasons. Personal reasons. A mother just doesn't want the child. Social reasons may hinder her career. On some occasions, even interfere with going on holiday. There's economic reasons that are given. Believing that a child would put severe strain upon finances in a home... There's medical reasons. Believing that a child may have a a disability or a mother's health may be impacted. There are various reasons why abortions take place. But in the United Kingdom, it is reckoned that around 98% of all abortions that have taken place since 1968 have been for social reasons. It is a very small, small percentage of abortions that ever take place because a mother's life is in danger. It is for other reasons, social reasons, that is the vast reason that is given for wanting to abort a child. Nothing wrong with the child, nothing wrong with a mother, mother's life not being endangered in any fashion, but just for social reasons, abortion is going to take place. Now thankfully at that time, 55 years ago, the law did not apply to Northern Ireland. But as you well know, that has changed in recent years. Back in 2019, abortion was decriminalized here in Northern Ireland and a new legal framework was introduced in 2020. Abortion is now unconditionally legal up to 12 weeks in Northern Ireland. After 12 weeks, it reflects the rest of the law in the United Kingdom. An abortion is being ingrained more and more as a right. It's a right. It's not something that is designed to protect a mother's life, which is what the law in Northern Ireland had reflected for many, many years. And we'll say a little bit about that and how scriptural that is just uh, in a moment or two as we progress through the message this evening. But that's not the view that is currently uh, held about these matters. It's looked upon as as a right. In fact, those RSE regulations that have been creating such a stir this last few months that the Secretary of State has brought in, I was just directed to some of the legislation today, and I was looking it up, and the point that was being made to me was that this is ingrained as a right in the legislation that children, young people, in secondary school, are going to be taught it's your right to have an abortion. Nobody can hinder you or stand in your way. And it's been ingrained and embedded more and more into society that, that this is a right that you have. Well, I want us to consider the Word of God this evening under this subject of protecting the life of the unborn. And in so doing, I want you to see that abortion is to be viewed as a deliberate taking. A way of human life. A deliberate taking away of human life and therefore it is a crime against God. One which he treats with abhorrence. To abort a child for social reasons is nothing short of murder. And tonight I I really want to establish that point and fix it in your mind. And particularly maybe you young people here in the congregation who are listening or listening on online I want you to establish that firmly in your mind that it's not something that is a grey area. It's not something that, well, you can have mixed views and different views and it doesn't matter what side you come down on here. To take away a child's life, an unborn child's life, is, is murder according to the word of God. And I want to establish that this evening. I want you, first of all, to consider that the unborn child in Scripture is described as a person. An unborn child in Scripture is described as a person. It's not a lesser person because the child is yet unborn. That's how secular society seeks to view the matter. They use terms for that unborn child that I believe dehumanizes and depersonalizes that unborn child and portrays it just as a form of matter. Now there may be scientific terms for different stages of an unborn child and I acknowledge that but I also make the point that using those terms has helped society dehumanize and depersonalize the unborn You see, they don't talk about a child unborn in the same way that the scriptures talk about an unborn child. And I'm going to give you a few examples here as we look at this matter. But you'll know that they may call an unborn child an embryo or a fetus. That might not be deliberately done by everyone, but it is done by some And part of their reasoning behind that is to seek to portray that somehow that unborn child is less than human, subhuman, and therefore it's all right to abort that child. It's not a full person. Well, is that what the Word of God would suggest to us? Would would the Word of God support that position if we were to adopt to it and hold to it? Well, I want you to notice that the unborn child is described as a person. And the Lord uses the same words about the unborn as he uses about someone that is born. If you go over to Genesis chapter 25, let's go back to that portion of scripture for a moment. Genesis chapter 25. And we're thinking here about Rebecca. And... Those unborn twins that were in her womb. Genesis chapter 25, and it's the 22nd verse that I want you to particularly notice. And it tells us there in that verse, And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. So setting aside the immediate context here of what's happening in Rebecca's life and the struggle that there was ultimately between Jacob and Esau, as we know, the names that were given to these two sons that, that were born. But I want you to notice the word that is used here. It says there in verse 22, And the children struggled together within her. That's, that's the word that we get Ben, Benjamin from, or ben it's the, the common word in the Old Testament for son. And it can be used in the plural to refer to children. And that's what the word of God is, is doing here. And remember we believe in the verbal inspiration of the word of God. So the very words that God uses in his word is important. He didn't just give a thought to the writer of scripture and let, let them uh, compose it in their own words. No, the Lord gave the very words. We believe in verbal inspiration. So the words are important and when you come to a subject like this and the point that I am making here that God in his word by the spirit of inspiration uses the exact same terminology of an unborn child as one that has been born and brought into the world. I was just looking up out of curiosity as when does a child start to move in the womb? And there's there's a, a variation in 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 time, but anything from twelve to sixteen weeks, a child can move in the womb. So when you think about the subject of abortion and what society has for standards up to twenty four weeks, you can have uh, an abortion. Then we come to God's word, and we notice the words that the Lord uses here. In, in the scriptures. That he identifies Jacob and, and Esau here. He, goes, he tells that uh, to to Rebecca when you read on down that chapter. and in, in fact read into the next verse. He told her two nations are in thy womb and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger It ties in with what we've been reading there in the psalm and those verses that I've drawn to your attention, how the Lord knows the unborn individual. The Lord can here sketch out before uh, Rebecca their lives, the circumstances of these two boys and how they're going to develop into two separate nations and there's going to be a conflict one with the other and one's going to be stronger than the other as well. The Lord was able to tell Rebecca, all of these things. It's no surprise then that the Lord would use that terminology then in verse 22 when he uses the word ben or children here as it's translated in our English Bible. Because the Lord is here identifying the fact. There's no difference between the child unborn and the child born. In this sense, they are a person. Is this just a is this just a one off? Well, let's go over to the New Testament now, to Luke's Gospel, chapter one, and we'll find that the same thought is carried over here into the the New Testament, and in the New Testament language, it's exactly the same. And you'll know that the New Testament language is different to uh, the Old Testament language, but the same principle is carried over here we're looking at Luke's gospel chapter 1 and this time it's verse 36 and it says there behold thy cousin Elizabeth she hath also conceived a son and in her old age and this is the sixth month with her which was called barren that's an unborn child that is being described here as a son. Go down to verse 57, and it says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. So again, the Lord is using in His word verbal inspiration. We're into the New Testament now, in the New Testament language, and the Lord is following the same principle in that He uses the same terminology. Here it's Luke, it was Moses back there in Genesis who was writing that particular account. It's Luke that's writing here, and He's inspired of the Lord to use the same terminology of a child unborn as a child that is born. It's called a son. It's called a son. Let's go a little further into Chapter Two of Luke's Gospel, and sorry, right, we need to stay with Chapter Luke, Chapter One. Do we pick up verses forty-three and forty, uh, forty-one and forty-four? It is. It's the word babe I'm looking for here. Yes, verse forty-one, Luke Chapter One, verse forty-one. It came to pass, and when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Verse 44 repeats the same thought. The babe leaped in my womb for joy. This unborn child is called the babe. And then when we go over into uh, uh, the next chapter of Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we come down to verse 12, and it's here speaking of the infant Christ. And it says, Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. So the same word continues on. So, this is how the Lord looks upon the unborn. He doesn't dehumanize them or depersonalize them in in any particular way. He looks upon them as a person, in the womb or out of the womb, unborn or born. It matters not to the Lord. Because, as we're taught here in this particular psalm that we were reading from this evening, the Lord has formed that child according to a divine blueprint. As I say, we don't have time tonight to to go through these uh, verses one by one and take the the statements that are found here in them. But if I can draw this much to uh, your attention at the very least, that the Lord has formed this individual. And it's according to that divine blueprint that he has divinely ordered and ordained even from eternity past. The psalmist said there, verse 13, Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. There's personality, there's a human being that has here been formed and developed. We could take the words that the Lord spoke to to Jeremiah as well. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Before I formed thee in the belly I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. A person in every sense. A true person. A human person. And therefore one of equal value and equal worth. Whether someone is born or unborn, there is same value to that life. The Lord looks upon them as the same person. And therefore, how can it be right to take away the life of the unborn for social reasons or economic reasons? That applies. You know whether the child has some serious disability or not. That applies whether the child is the offspring of a forbidden relationship or not. Why should a child lose its life? Because it has a disability, an unborn child. There's there's something ironic about society that promotes disability rights and yet turns a blind eye to the killing of a disabled unborn child. That just doesn't add up. There's a contradiction, an obvious contradiction in that. And yet one that society is more than happy to live with. Since when is it ever right to kill a child for the sins of its father? And yes, there are difficult circumstances at times and often those difficult circumstances are thrown up on the issue of, a, of abortion and these difficult circumstances, which are very rare. Remember what I said, 98% of abortion is for social reasons, not, not for these other reasons. But oftentimes these difficult cases are, are brought to the fore and they're, they're used to, to promote abortion and, and push this agenda well, the obvious question needs to be asked, since when did you kill a child for the sins of its father? That's not justice. It's certainly not biblical justice, and it's, it's not justice in any realm. And yet, that's what happens with regards to abortion and an unborn child that is the fruit of an illicit union in some fashion. The Lord says it's a person. He counts it as a person. And therefore, we must protect the life of that unborn child. The second thing I want you to consider here in this matter is that God requires the same punishment for killing the unborn as he does for killing a grown adult. God requires the same punishment for killing the unborn as for killing a grown adult. Would that not underscore how important it is to protect the life of the unborn and that the fact that the Lord does indeed treat them as a full human being? Let's go back again to earlier books. uh, The book of Exodus, this time chapter 21. If you would turn there and look at a couple of, of portions here in Exodus 21. I picked this chapter, there's other places as we know where the the law for capital punishment as we we call it is established in the scriptures but I picked this chapter particularly and it's worth taking note of uh, Christian if you're ever discussing this matter with people because here's a chapter where both the, the, the punishment for the crime of murder for an adult is stated and also the punishment for killing an unborn child is mentioned in the same chapter. So it's a very important chapter. We're familiar with the commandments in the previous chapter, and the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. But there's some verses here in chapter 21 that I want you to, to notice. Look at verse 12. It says, He that smiteth a man so that he die shall, he sure, shall be surely put to death. Well, there establishes this this principle of of capital punishment. Maybe I should stop for a moment and underscore that that the idea of capital punishment originates in the scriptures. It originates in the scriptures. It used to be practiced in our nation, but hasn't been for many many decades now. There are some other countries that um, practice capital punishment. Well, let's underscore the point that it's biblical. It's biblical. It is the Lord, the creator, the giver of life, who says that if you take away a human life, you deserve to forfeit your own life. If it's murder. Now, there's a difference between murder and and manslaughter. In fact, the Lord acknowledges that there in verse 13. As I say, this is a very important chapter in this regard. Exodus 21, and if you look at verse 13, if a man lie not and wait but God deliver him into his hand, then I will appoint the a place whither he shall flee. So the Lord makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter is the accidental taking away of the life of another. It's a serious thing. And you know that in Israel, the man who was guilty of manslaughter had to leave his home and flee. Flee to the city of refuge and get there before the avenger of blood ever caught up on him. And he had to stay there until the high priest died. And he couldn't leave. So the Lord makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter. And the punishment for murder, the willful taking away of the life of another human being, is that that individual forfeits their own life. That was reestablished. We'll not go back to it tonight for sake of time. But you go back to when Noah came out of the ark. And it was established there in Genesis chapter 9. Reestablished. Noah was told about it again. Noah, this is the rule for life in the world. If somebody takes away a human life deliberately and willfully, their life is to be taken from them. And that carries on through. And it carries on through into the the New Testament as well. Just in case someone might think, oh, but that's an Old Testament law. No, it's not. It's part of the moral law. And that's easily... Uh, supported by noticing what Paul had to say in Acts uh, of the Apostles, chapter 25 and verse 11, where he said, I refuse not to die if I have done anything worthy of death. So when he was arrested and there were those who were demanding that he die, Paul said that, if I have done anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Paul acknowledged the existence of capital punishment. Capital punishment is built upon the scriptures. Now the Lord has criteria for it to be applied in the mouth of two witnesses. But that's a, another uh, issue tonight altogether. But the Bible does stipulate that the individual who takes away the life of another human being is to forfeit their own life. But now if you look there at Genesis, or sorry, Exodus 21 again, Let's go down the chapter a little bit further because now we come to the issue. Well, what about the unborn? What's the punishment for taking away the life of the unborn? Well, let's come down to verse 22. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay as the judges determine And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. And it was on there, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, strife for stripe. But particularly verse 23, if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life. We're talking about the unborn and someone who causes the life of an unborn child to be extinguished. The Lord says you will take life for life. That's what justice demands. So the Lord sets it down in his word. The same punishment is to be applied. To taking a human life. Whether it's a full grown adult. Or whether it's a child in the womb. If somebody does something To bring about the death of that child, you see, in God's eyes, to kill the unborn is to murder them. It's interesting to notice. I'll I'll point this out. We want to move on uh, and think about some other matters, but I'll, I'll point this out as you go along. If you if you go over to a familiar portion, Genesis chapter four and the death of Abel, the murder of Abel, the first murder that there is in the Bible. And in verse 10 of that chapter, if you've got a margin in your Bible, look at the marginal reference against verse 10, and it will tell you that that verse that we often know about his blood crying unto uh, the Lord from the ground is actually in the plural in the Old Testament language. His blood's, his blood's, crieth unto the Lord from the ground. What, What does that mean? Well, if you look up commentators and those who who understand the use of, of those words will suggest that it's a reference to the fact that Cain was guilty of killing not only Abel but other descendants that were in the loins of Abel. He was being held accountable not just for killing Abel but for killing those who were in his loin, the loins of Abel. Guilty of the bloods. The Lord takes it as a serious uh, matter. You know that that murder defiles a land? Numbers chapter 35. Just to look at one portion here before we move on to, to something else. Numbers chapter 35. In verse 30 it says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. I've already made that point. Moreover, he shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer which is guilty of death. But he shall be surely put to death. There's to be no plea bargaining and letting someone off with murder. The Lord says you'll not do it. Somebody can't pay their way to live and and be excused the crimes that they have committed. Look at verse 30 through 33, "So ye shall not pollute the land wherein ye are; for blood it defileth the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it." There's a number of reasons why the Lord demands the life of the murderer to be taken away, and one of them is, it takes away the defilement of the land. You don't need me, men and women, to tell you that our nation is defiled. This province has been defiled by blood for many years through the troubles and the taking away of human life. But on the subject of abortion, our whole nation is polluted before God. It's polluted. And what does the Lord think of us as a nation, or any nation? But we're thinking of our own nation tonight, and even our own province now as well. In the implementation of abortion in these recent times. It defiles the land, God says. And nothing will ever take away that defilement until the murderer is dealt with. There is that exhortation in verse 34 there of Numbers 35. Defile not therefore the land which ye shall inhabit wherein I dwell. For I the Lord dwell among the children of Israel. What must the Lord think of our nation? It's certainly a day for taking up those words of Scripture that we have over towards the, the end of the Old Testament. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. What else could you plead before God tonight for this land of ours? What else could we plead but, Lord, have mercy on us? Have mercy and turn the tide of wickedness and ungodliness That is in the land and increasing in the land. There's one final matter here I want to to deal with. I think it is important to do so because it is important to distinguish the Protestant view of abortion to the Romanist view of abortion. And there is a difference. And I would encourage you to be careful what uh, anti-abortion organizations you support. Because there are some from a Roman Catholic background and you need to know they have a different view of abortion than an evangelical, biblical, Protestant view. What is the difference? Well, let me pose it in a question to you. Is it ever right to be party to the ending of the life of a child, an unborn child? Are there any exceptions? Does the scripture warrant any exceptions? Or is it a blanket rule? That you must never, ever be party to taking away the life of an unborn child. Well, this is where the distinction is to to be noted. As I say, there's, there's many reasons. The vast majority of them fall into that category where it is wrong and ought never to be anything that we condone or be a party to in any fashion. But there are times. And the law in Northern Ireland for many, many years reflected the biblical point of view. Protestant biblical point of view, an evangelical point of view, and it was this that where a mother 's life is in danger, and there is a choice that has to be made between the life of a mother and the life of an unborn child, which which comes first, which is more important. Well, how do we decide? Are we the moral arbiters of that? Is some doctor going to make the judgment? Are we going to hand that decision over to someone else or? Does God's word give you a pointer to what ought to be done in those circumstances? Why why would we submit to God's word and everything else and then come to something like that and suddenly say, well, we're going to to opt out of what the Lord says here. We're not going to think about the scriptures and we're going to deal with this uh, just on our own level or someone else is going to make this decision. That wouldn't be right either. I've posed the question, is it ever right? Well, let me answer the question. Yes, sometimes there is a choice to be made. And what governs that choice? What governs that choice is the sixth commandment that you know very well, thou shalt not kill. You see, an unborn child doesn't have the right to kill his mother. That's what it comes down to. An unborn child doesn't have the right to kill its mother either. The unborn child has to live by the moral law of God and the commandments, like every other individual, born or unborn. If they are a a, a person, and they are, we've sought to establish that tonight, they don't have the right to kill their mother. And if that comes to a situation... Very few circumstances there are, but times it is. Maybe sometime a mother needs to have treatment for something or some other way her life is in danger. As I say, the law in Northern Ireland reflected that and provided for that for years. And that was a biblical position that was adopted by our Protestant forefathers. And the simple answer is that no, an unborn child doesn't have the right to kill its as mother. Now Rome, Romanism believes that in every circumstance where uh, a life of a mother is endangered that it ought to be the child that lives and the mother who dies. And that's to do with Rome's views on baptismal regeneration and the need for the child to be alive when it is baptized. Otherwise historically Rome believed that unbaptized uh, infants would go to limbo. Now they're they're denying that and the process of moving away from that. But that was their reasoning in years gone by. The whole doctrine of limbo. They They don't say much about that these days. But Rome believed in limbo. That a child that died unbaptized would go to limbo. Wouldn't go to heaven. Would go to limbo. And therefore they would always support the child being born alive and if that meant the mother's life was going to be taken away, well, then so so be it. But historically Protestantism hasn't held that view. Historically Protestantism hasn't held that view because going back to this point that I have been making uh, here, that yes, if there is a case where medical treatment is needed to preserve the life of a mother, or some other reason why her life is in danger, that child doesn't have the right to life to such an extent that that mother's life is lost. You see, the sixth commandment requires the preservation of life. It's stated in the commandment in the negative, as we know, thou shalt not kill, or the Lord interpreted that, thou shalt not murder, over in the Gospels. But as you know, if you've been taught the Shorter Catechism and come up through Sunday School, you will know the importance of not only the the commandment as it stands on its own, but you will know that there's there's another way of looking at the commandment, and that is the, the, the positive way of looking at it. You're required to preserve life. I'm required to preserve life. We are to make all reasonable efforts to preserve life. We're not to stand aside and let somebody's life be lost. We would be breaking the sixth commandment by doing that. That's omission. And there's sins of omission, as we know. So there is a a requirement to preserve life. And where there is that need to preserve life because of a situation that has developed and a mother's life is in in danger, a child cannot demand its right to life at the expense of its mother. You you can't demand that, you see, as an adult or as an individual outside the womb. Let's even take a step backward. You don't have that right to to demand. Oh, I have the right to life even at the expense of another person's life. My right to life is so sacrosanct that I can demand someone else's life is forfeited so that I can maintain mine. That can't happen. We don't have that right outside the womb, and a child doesn't have that right inside the womb either. So the point that I'm making here is that that historical position that had been adopted by our Protestant forefathers in this country, was a biblical one. And it's one that we ought to maintain. And we need to make that distinction today. As I say, there are organizations that are anti-abortion and fair play to them for all that they do and standing up for the unborn. But let's just be a little careful as evangelical believers, Bible believers, what we believe and why we believe it. Let me finish on that point and have a gospel application about the importance of abiding by God's law and God's rule. You see, that's why we're all sinners, because none of us can abide by that rule. We've been thinking about just one commandment and the impact that it would have upon this matter and even the preservation of life as well, but isn't there the reminder there? Now we've all come short of his glory. We've all failed to keep his law. That makes us sinners. We're born sinners. We're conceived as sinners. Isn't that what the psalmist said? I was shapened in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're sinners coming into this world. We need a savior. And we rejoice tonight that there is indeed a Savior. And if you're in this meeting out of Christ, maybe you've come because of the subject and we're glad to see you, but I would like you to address the matter of your soul tonight in closing. Never mind the unborn and the importance of this subject that we're thinking about, but what about your soul? What about the danger you have of dying eternally? And maybe you are someone and you're exercised about this matter, and rightly so. And you would go to great lengths to stand against this idea of abortion. And maybe you're not saved. Maybe you've not ever thought about your own soul. The fact you're in danger of dying eternally and being separated from God. We need a savior because we're born in sin. We're born sinners. You don't have to teach your children to sin. Any parent knows that. You never have to teach your child to lie or to be disobedient or disrespectful or any other sin. You you never have to sit down to teach them that. That comes naturally to them. Because we're born in sin. A sinful nature separates us from God. We need a Saviour tonight. And if you're not saved, may you indeed come to know that Savior. He'll save you tonight. He'll forgive sin. He'll forgive sin. And there are things in people's past. The Lord is able to forgive. The Lord is able to forgive. And Maybe you're here tonight and there's something in your past. Wouldn't be the first person. I can testify to that as a minister. If somebody coming and saying, I've done something in my past and I don't know whether the Lord could ever save me or not. Well, I can assure you on the strength of God's word, the Lord will forgive you. Christ died for sin. And he took sin upon himself and he'll forgive your sin. You confess it, repent of it, he'll forgive it. He'll make you a child of God. He'll fit you for heaven. I trust the Lord will bless His Word tonight to all of our hearts. We'll just close in prayer. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. Our heavenly Father, we pray, Thou will bless these things that we have considered this evening in the light of Thy Word. We pray, Lord, that Thou might help us to understand Thy Word and hold fast to it, and may we indeed be those who know Christ as Saviour, who have been forgiven. Lord, we've all sinned, every single one of us. Will we bless thee tonight? This book reveals a Saviour, a Saviour who came as a child, as a babe into this world, swaddled there in his mother's arms and in that manger, that he might go to the cross and lay down his life as a ransom for the many. And we thank thee tonight there's forgiveness for sins. Lord, even great sins, scarlet sins, crimson sins. We thank thee that they can be washed whiter than the snow. So bless thy word. Bless all who are here under the sound of it. Those who would listen in online as well. And part us now with thy fear and favor. And grant us thy abiding presence. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.